All right, welcome back to Talk Talk. I'm your host, Emily Osam, and I'm here today with Bill Keisner, teacher of global politics and theory of knowledge. And we're also here with Donna G, who is a design technology teacher for the diploma program. So I'm excited today. We're going to be talking about prompt five, which is what counts as good evidence for a claim? Sound fun? It does. (laughs) Really excited. What was it that interested you guys about this prompt? I like this prompt because in global politics, it's basically an ongoing argument. And evidence is entirely dependent on the theory that you choose to interpret the evidence through. So some evidence can be good for some theories and not for other theories. So because the class is so nebulous, there are so many different um, values and limitations to each argument that evidence can be good from one perspective, but not good from another perspective. Mm. So there is never a right answer, Mm. which uh, some students get frustrated with, but I absolutely love the chaos of it. I think it's great. Sure, that's interesting. Is that similar to design, or what would what yeah, interested you? In design, it would be a uh, the individual designer's perception of what they're observing in a design project, uh, usually from a client observation mm-hmm. or from a user trial. Uh, so it's about trying to collect as many pieces of evidence to mm-hmm. guide constraints of a design project. So it's interesting to see perhaps designers biases before they start collecting larger amounts of evidence along the way and how their constraints specifications or projects may change along the way as they build more evidence to support the project nice okay so it's interesting the the part of the question that interested both of you was this like um the focus on evidence and the conflict of perspective perhaps in that what about, um, if we back up a little bit, maybe we'll start with global politics. What are the kinds of claims that, that might be made in global politics? Well, there's two main schools that are realism and liberalism. And there's different offshoots of each of these. So there's offensive and defensive realism, different theories uh, in how to interpret how the world works, right? And just an example of how these theories shape the lens you view the world, a realist will see the world in this state of anarchy that is basically there it doesn't mean that there are no rules where everyone's just at each other's throats but it does mean that there is no higher authority than the state so mm. the state is the highest authority what happens subnationally is irrelevant it doesn't so matter that's just a claim in itself right. that's right. the claim that's an assumption that's the assumption the oh, okay yeah. but liberals uh believe that there are other actors besides state actors. NGOs can influence global mm. politics. Um, non-state actors can influence global politics. Whereas you can have the same sets of evidence for each, but a realist would perhaps see the activities of NGOs as completely irrelevant and saying that the state will fight for survival regardless of who is in charge. So if, if uh, Germany in World War II was led by Gandhi instead of Hitler, it wouldn't have mattered the same thing would have happened wow. because states have these rules that they're going to follow. However, a liberal would see it very differently. Right. I see. Okay. Fascinating. So there's really only the two? There's no, not sort no. of a – There's clearly there's many other perspectives, right. There's, right? there's critical theories as well. So those are the two main theories that okay. help interpret our world. And the critical theories are a bit different because they have an agenda, right? Something mm. like feminism or Marxism. Right. Okay. Right? All the other Marxism yeah, yeah, yeah. and so on. Okay. Okay. Uh, there's not sort of a middle ground. 
between between liberalism, liberalism and realism. I mean, there's longer term. So realism would be a short term, where I, I argue it as a short term, where you look at how states are going to behave in the in uh, the short term, and it it's a pretty good indicator of how a state will behave. But then you look at liberalism, which extends the lens a little bit further out. Um, so you look at how communities will work together um, to complete an objective, right? And it doesn't have to always be peaceful. It's not kumbaya all the time. Look at NATO. Mm. NATO is a liberal organization, yet it's meant to stop Russia, right? So mm. it's this military organization. So it's not always peaceful. But then you have constructivism, which thinks on these longer-term time frames, and it thinks about how we all think about ideas. And the one classic example in constructivism is one day everybody was going about their business and the Soviet Union existed, and then the next day it didn't, and it just disappeared. And it was all because we all decided to change our minds. Mm. And right, that idea of how do the structures within how we view the world work. Uh, but those are much longer. That's not a good predictor for short term. Um, so just kind of going back to the what kind of claim. They're mm. generally claims that are explanatory or interpretive claims mm. like this caused that. Right. Global politics is probably also interested in factual claims as well. Sure. Sometimes, but I think, well, what do you mean by factual? When you're saying oh, factual I mean, claims, dates, times, things that certainly they like, even the perspective wouldn't disagree upon. Right. You would want to use facts, factual evidence, to actually support your idea. There's a current debate on will there be a peaceful rise of China in the world? Mm. And offensive realists say, no, it won't. And they use the U.S.'s rise to power post World War II demonstrating that it, it will not be as peaceful as everyone wants it to be. Okay. It may not be an all-out World War III, but if we look at the examples we have in the past, mm. it's those do not indicate that the future will be the same. The problem is you don't know the future is a black box, yeah. and you're always predicting something. Right. Then. So really predictive claims are predictive. really the most Absolutely. interesting. How about in um, just sort of shifting? Mm. So what kind of claims do we make in design? So just thinking of parallel areas as well, uh, looking under areas of social development of designs or, or uh, economical development or uh, environmental development of products, I think those would be the three basic areas uh, where there are claims meant, uh, made on needs. Uh, so within developing countries, claims made on the need of economic development and mm. to support uh, local industry or potentially with uh, CO2 emissions, different claims made about uh, the nature of a product and whether it needs to be redeveloped yeah. or whether um, research and development needs to go into those types of areas to, to bring down the impact on the environment in certain industries. Mm. Uh, and then is there any uh, negotiation from a higher top-down mm. policy such as governments uh, different national legislature which might restrict some of those developments taking place, mm. uh, especially in material development or emission development. Uh, and then it also is there any big corporations that are guiding those claims as well? Mm. Uh, and then from bottom up, are there small NGOs? Are there uh, different uh, smaller design companies or research labs uh, that are showing the need for development in a certain area to reduce environmental impact or to build socially responsive designs and then when are there claims where there's potentially a need for a socially constructed product which is more pushed by market push or technology push as opposed to a social need yeah 
mean, design is all about solving problems, right? Yeah. It's like seeing a problem and trying to find a way to make it better. Yeah. Whatever it is, with whether it's a product or service. Whereas global politics is looking at explaining what will happen or what has happened. What has happened and then potentially using that as a jumping point to mm. predict what will happen. So that's interesting because they're really different in that way. In, in the sense of like what kinds of what the purpose of each area is. Mm. Um, and that then also probably shifts the types of claims that are being made. And then I wonder what kind of evidence we might be looking for in order to support those. So evidence is not the same thing as proof. Proof is undeniable at a certain point, and it requires evidence to get there, at least within a court of law, right? We often mm. think of like evidence. What evidence do you have? You have like testimony, you have... Uh, empirical evidence, DNA, probably a higher form of evidence than um, perhaps others. So evidence is not the same as proof, but there are certainly good evidence and not so good evidence. So I'm wondering, what do you guys think about that? What kind of evidence and what is it that makes evidence compelling or good? I think within design, uh, the, we tend to be a more tangible it seems like perhaps the difference between our subjects particularly is that design ends up with an output which is very tangible. You can touch it. You can take yeah. readings from it. Yeah. In terms of the output of that, if we looked at uh, an area of environmental impact, for example, um, which might guide a lot of development of products, there's two areas which are quite interesting to compare in terms of proof or evidence. So one would be uh, ecological label or um, environmental output, which would be on a particular piece of equipment or machine or a tangible object. So for instance, an air conditioner, you would have your, your ratings and they would be guided by a certain government. So some, there's an EU rating system where you can see exactly how that particular product is performing. Mm. Uh, whereas if you're looking at the specific companies, they can create sustainability reports, which they compile their own evidence for how they're meeting environmental mm. expectations. And so one of those you could say is more proof. It's using specific readings Mm. Um, to prove how they're performing. Uh, the other one, perhaps, is they're collecting evidence, but it's based on their opinions mm. and on their perception of how they're performing. Yeah, so perhaps, the, it depending on what it's for, mm. that, that empirical evidence might be more compelling, might be better. Yeah. Um, that makes sense for factual claims. Yeah. Um, but if it's value claims, like we should be or claims about how the design field should be, what kinds of dis uh, questions or approaches should guide the answers, that probably has a lot more range for types of evidence. Definitely. And if you're looking at ideas for developing a product and, and that a situation is worthy of creating a right. solution, then there's many other more open aspects to look at for evidence such as consumer reports yeah. uh, there's opinions of professions in the field mm. there's even different educational networks there was the area of textile pollution impacting air water and that's become a really big figure mm. in environmental impact at the moment for designers and that filters in through many different areas but again it's perception of that mm. supported by some points of evidence but it is using consumer opinion it's using experts in the field opinion um, it's using some factual information from reading out what the factory is doing or 
the, the cotton plantations, how much water is it using? So it's accumulation of all three. Yeah, so those kinds of, the, the better, the more you have, the better the yeah. evidence sort of. Definitely. <laughs> so the, in, in well, the case it might of, be that you're heavily impacted by a particular consumer group or they you have a bias to sort of watch what you're influenced by them. Maybe they're a higher influence mm. Uh, or if uh, there's groups of teachers in the design field that are influenced by a particular education network, uh, or if there's um, you know uh, different global groups like yeah. uh, that have protocols set out that might influence a starting point, mm-hmm. recognizing that yep, this is a situation which has significance mm. um, and can be further researched. But you're always going to want to then find a few more factual pieces or other yeah. areas to support whether to spend time on that or time and resource as well it also makes me think of you said like some of the claims made in design is like about what is needed Mm. and it makes me think about uh things like microplastics or things like that that it's becoming such an issue because it's touching upon so many industries and so many countries and it's having more effects than you know just one small local instance consensus or something like this is a good evidence yeah i mean we have groups of uh categories for design influences Mm. so like your eco warriors your eco fans and different hierarchies there Mm. that might influence designers or consumers Mm -hmm. and um and eco warriors look at those people in newsworthy positions in media in um environmental groups that will go out and raise awareness for Mm. uh, some of these topics which are hitting globally. Mm. Uh, What needs to be looked at carefully is that uh, microplastics is quite a big, broad area Mm. and there's ease of going into a bias of saying, okay, well, we shouldn't use plastic at all anymore, but the development after the industrial revolution of plastics and using it in certain industries actually is more beneficial to the environment. It's the single-use plastics or it's, uh, again, not going into research and development of the life cycle of plastics use uh, that causes some of the the issues later on. It's tricky because it... It makes me think about how much the perspective and the agenda of the groups or individuals would be at play here. Because obviously different political groups are going to have different, you know, it's gonna, they know it's going to have different impact on all the different structures. Um, so it's interesting because that actually connects quite well with what happens in global politics. What would you say if we shift over to global mm-hmm. politics? Like when we're thinking about what kind of evidence or what makes good or more compelling evidence for, I guess, a particular explan- explanation mm-hmm. or theory within global it's, politics. It's quite similar in that there's multiple forms of authority, right, where you have these different schools of thought. Um, it can be realism. It can be liberalism, like we talked about. But then to justify those the use of those theories, you then need to have what would be specific, what I, I guess you'd call specific evidence. Mm. So at this date, this thing happened. This thing represents, uh, can be explained through this theory, um, and then you have to justify why it can be. Um, and then I think it's interesting that you have, oftentimes you have to combine multiple theories in one paper. And our product, I guess, would be papers. Mm. That's all we have in global politics. 
um, from an academic side. Okay, yeah, sure. Because the academics are the ones who are actually analyzing what's happening. Mm. Um, unless you want to talk about something like diplomacy, but that's a bit different, right? Mm. That's, the, that's the actual nuts and bolts of states talking to each other. But in the class, we combine, let's say, theories of otherness with theories of hierarchy. And you say, I'm going to analyze these two case studies through these lenses, and they help explain what has happened and why it has happened. Mm. Um, so the evidence would come from the authority of people that have come before you that have mm. these theories that have been accepted by the greater global political community. Um, and then you have factual evidence to justify those ideas. I guess it comes from authority primarily. Interesting. Okay, so I've kind of got a list here of things that might count as good evidence. So we talked about empirical evidence, things that are often associated with like facts. You know, as long as we're giving some credit to our senses to the point as far as we can trust them, then this, these are the facts. You've also just mentioned authority. So trust in authority or um, it would have to be like testimony of a, an authority figure or a group. consumer group. Yeah. So that's a form of authority, yeah, right? A like a consumer group. Organization. Consensus, authority. But that, that one that one definitely is tricky. And that's that's probably the most compelling evidence, but also perhaps some of the more dangerous evidence for a claim. Yeah, I think that's where in design some pioneers of design products can have a failing product mm. because they might follow the testimony, but yeah. there might be some of the authority figures that don't aren't ready for that product to be diffused into the market yet. Mm. Um, and so it will be suppressed. And then that pioneer company, which may be a smaller branch of a company or a local br branch of a company, uh, financially is then unstable yeah. um, if they're putting all of their research and development into that product development. So that's then the, the next thing would be like, does it work? Yeah. Application of that. If you can apply it, and this I think goes beyond like theories in natural science, in, in the arts, both their application and like power to explain is a form of evidence, right? If it can explain something and or predict something accurately or pro, you know, as we expect it to work out, then that's actually pretty good evidence, right? And I think in design, that's happening at the end of the process mm. is doing an evaluation via testing. And they'll bring in experts from the field. They'll do user observation. For higher level students, they incorporate user-centered design focus. Mm. So they're actually bringing in users at every point of the design process. And they're trying to do field trials yeah. of prototyping. They're trying to watch that there is evidence points along the way that the product is useful. Mm. And it has a bit more of a direction on looking at the user and the social implementation. Yeah. It made me think about in Glopo, like how it would be kind of that application or explanatory power would only be relevant in hindsight. I find it's also the simplicity of the model. As oh yeah, is really oh. so. So simplicity the, as a, as a good point of evidence. And, Simple and explanation works. is best, right? Yep, exactly. Oh, yeah. Realism is pretty easy because there's five assumptions, and then those assumptions then are pretty good at predicting what states will do ninety mm. percent of the time. Mm. All the time, no, but ninety percent of the time, sure. I kind of like that because you might you might elaborate, refine, reevaluate and then launch the paper or the theory? Is that sort of... Yeah. Because that's also the, um, you know, the higher level design students would go through that same process too. So right. they would keep testing and using the product right. and refining and, it, and refining. And then at the end, they say, okay, it's ready to launch. Yes, yeah. and it changes over time. Mm. Yeah, so we're looking at a point now where we have this, 
guy, Joseph Nye, who has discussed this idea of power in terms of hard, soft, uh, and smart power. Hard power is like coercion, forcing people to do something. Soft power is this power of attraction, and smart is the combination of a state using both of these forms of powers to, to get another state to do what it wants. An example of soft power would be K-pop or blue jeans or something like that. Something somebody wants, not something you're pushing on mm -hmm. them. But these powers are now being tested as Nye says, as these powers shift, they change the narrative. And if you can control the narrative, then you can control essentially what's happening. So one of the arguments I'm putting forward in a paper I'm writing for my master's now is that this narrative is changing because of China's rise in that China doesn't see economics and investing in countries often as hard power. So Nye would see it as hard, mm. but China explicitly says this is soft power. Mm. Um, and they're becoming powerful enough where they're beginning to change the narrative, right? People at the school on that would disagree with me often with that. But I do see the beginnings of this narrative changing, which means that a new theory will be needed because this one no longer explains mm. the world that we live in as mm. these power dynamics change. Interesting. Yeah, it's strange. But it always continues to evolve and change. So what is accepted now as as perspectives change as the world shifts as power moves around the globe there's going to be a need for different explanations for all of these dynamics so mm. it'll always change moving forward so just kind of as a as a means to wrap up and you guys have given a lot of really good ideas here about the two areas i thought it might be worthwhile just to think a little bit about what we've said about perspectives and how that is important in deciding what kinds of claims that are being made and, and so forth. But I also wanted to shift it towards thinking about claims that are you know, more personal, things that are like believed outside of global politics or design, things that I might say about myself or might say about other people within my own individual mind. For example, I might think I'm a creative person. It's a claim that I make about myself. And that has a really powerful impact on the kinds of things that I, you know, the way I behave, the kinds of decisions that I make, my career path, so forth. And it makes me think a lot about the kinds of evidence that are, is needed. And it goes back, we can use that same criteria that we were looking at before. I mean, empirical evidence, I could perhaps look for evidence, like with what I see, what have I made that demonstrates my creativity. Um, does it explain why I behave a particular way? Does it have some for, sort of use? I, I, am I getting that told to me by people I trust as well? But this is also, like, this is a harmless claim, right? I'm a creative person. That's actually quite a good claim. It's not going to hurt me or others. There are a lot of other kinds of claims that we make. I just wondered your thoughts on that. What do, you, what do you guys think? So I always go to this example. I think it's great because it makes you ask whether or not a truth is doesn't need to be the same for all, um, and if you have evidence to support it, does it ultimately matter if it is or is not true, mm. right? And the example I always use is, how do you know your parents, or how do you know your mother loves you? Listen, you weren't born yet. You don't know. They told you they love you. They've given you a life. They've given you this education and all these other things. But how do you know that perhaps your mom wasn't in a group of friends that, oh, we're perhaps having children at the same time. She's like, I'm going to have children as well. <laughs> and then she kind of gets in this phase of keeping up with the Joneses where, oh, so-and-so got into this school and so-and-so did this and they're providing this. And it turns out that internally it's 
horrific if your mother says, I don't like this, I don't want to do this. But externally, because of that, because it's horrifying to think that perhaps they didn't want to do it, they have just kept up this ruse your whole life, but you think they love you. Now, my question is, if you grew up thinking they love you, and it's never going to come out that perhaps they don't, right? In this horrible situation, <laughs> right? 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 What yes. Is it, what does it matter, right? Yeah, so does it help you to know that? Does it help you, right? Does not matter? You felt it. It yeah. is true to you. You've always felt it to be true. Mm. And even if they told you when you're 60s, right. you'd be like, well, I did feel, I felt loved. I felt taken care of. Yeah. So to you, the truth is yes. Perhaps to someone else, the truth is no. Yeah. But if you have evidence to back up that claim that you have, what does it matter if it's not true? Yeah. What do you want to say? I have to go. Okay. <laughs> All right. Uh, that's that's the end of that. On that note, I hope your parents love you. Yeah, of course. I was thinking to myself that if might not, have like you, really bad you. implications. Thank you guys so much for taking time today. Thank yeah. you. I'm going to go away and consider how deeply I am loved. Thank you. Thank you. My pleasure. Uh, thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks so much. That was a really fun session. I really enjoyed speaking to the both of them. Before I wrap up, one of the things I was trying to get at at the very end there was thinking about claims that we make about the world and our perspective of the world that perhaps have evidence for them and perhaps might have a greater impact. The example that Mr. Kaisner brought up at the end there about do your parents love you or not is kind of along the lines of what significance does it have if I know it or I don't know it. Perhaps that actually would have a negative impact if I knew that. It's probably better in that case that I don't know that and I do continue to believe. But certainly there are examples of types of knowledge that if I, or claims, that if I don't challenge them and I don't have good evidence for them that they're going to have some kind of negative impact on me or perhaps even more importantly, the wider world. That's it for today. Thanks so much. And I hope we've given you some good things to think about. Take care.